Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, over the last couple months, uh, we've been doing these Why Mosaic videos. Of course, you saw Lawrence and Heather's video earlier. Um, and our hope was to share uh, why we do what we do uh, as Mosaic, and, but also to share the stories of why people have chosen to make this church community their community. So the popes, the abbots, Tracy and Liberty, uh, Paige and Tucker, uh, Amy Lee, and several others have, have done their videos. Um, but by far, my favorite couple to shoot was Paige and Tucker. Um, and that's mainly because Paige was so overwhelmingly nervous about shooting this video. It was absolutely adorable. And so the first time we did the video, um, it didn't turn out great. It wasn't that the content wasn't great. It was the fact that there was this really annoying bird chirping in the background the entire time. And I tried my best to, to take the noise out and I couldn't. Uh, there was a few other matters that made the, the, the issue complicated. So uh, mind you, it was a very difficult pull for me to say, uh, Paige, you remember how you like did not want to do this video at all and you had to muster up enough umph to come do it by the way can you come do it again you and Tucker and so they did but then when they did it again um, it was my fault this time I didn't make sure the camera was in focus in fact it was just enough slightly out of focus that I was so scared of incurring the wrath of Paige Nixon Barnes that I did not ask them to shoot it a third time and so we went with the film that we did when you look at it it's just slightly out of focus but you get so mesmerized by Tucker's eyes you, you never really focus on it this morning we're going to talk about being focused or out of focus when it comes to our journey with Christ. So take a look at the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Now, Hebrews is a very fascinating book. Uh, For one, it is the longest book in the New Testament um, when it comes to word count. However, you don't know the author. Most books in the New Testament begin with such and such writing to such and such community. There is no location. There is no person claiming credit for it. So it's a very fascinating book from that end. The other aspect of it is, is how to get the genre in place. It's, it's a very Hebrew Christian Bible, right? Get it? Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. But what's interesting about it is it is written with a bunch of Judaic uh, uh, illustrations, uh, references to the Old Testament text, but it's very Christian in its theology. And so it makes for a very interesting book in a way that you don't see the theological perspective in any other book in the New Testament, which led the early church father, a person named Origen, to write, God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the context is very clear. It is a community that's facing some hardship, but it's also a community facing people falling away and not staying focused on their journey with Christ. And so to this, the writer in Hebrews writes this in in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is one of those passages, if you grew up in one of these churches, where you would shout a mm-hmm, amen to this type of text. You're reading this text and you're thinking, man, he is just trying to encourage them. He's trying to tell them to stay strong. He's telling them they're going to face hardship, but to remember that Christ faced hardship. It's one of those passages, you just read it and you just feel like you can walk on clouds. Because it's telling you you're not alone. That this great cloud of witnesses is with you. Now, what is he referring to there? Well, chapter 11 is all about these great heroes of faith. People who face difficult circumstances and yet journeyed with Christ. It, it almost looks like the lineup for the Justice League for DC Comics or for X-Men and the Avengers for Marvel Comics because you read some of the names. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It even talks about Rahab the prostitute. Like, where else do you find that in a list? It does sound like a karmic, like, hero group put together. Together. And it's saying, these are the people that have gone before us. These are the people that are the great cloud of witnesses, but it's also written in the present. It's saying, these people came before us, but keep in mind, this church community, this group of people are here to help you in Christ. It's a beautiful passage because it talks about the dynamics of the faith community. It talks about the dynamics of God who has gone before us and yet is present with us to encourage us. And he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. I love that reference. We'll get to that here in a minute. So again, you read the passage, you would say, amen, preacher. Like, keep preaching on this text, right? Why is he having to write this? That's the question I always have to ask myself. Why did the author have to remind them of this? What's going on in this community that he would have to remind them to fix their eyes on Christ, to not get entangled by the things that are happening around them? And so we have to consider that as we engage this text. I try not to dive too much into the original language of the Bible, but for one thing, when you study it for six years, you feel like you have to use it or it was wasted. Um, but sometimes we can get caught up in the monk of that. But a word he uses here is aphrotontos, which means look away from all else. So he's saying, look away from all else. All else, all else what? What is he having to tell them to take their eyes off in order to put back on Christ? So I think the statement he is making here is, look to Jesus. But I think if we were all honest, we might translate it this way. We fix our eyes on Jesus, but fill in the blank. And what is he having to tell them to take their eyes off of, to put on Christ? What it says here in verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. There's that big S word we're talking about. That's that word that when you use that word in the church, it immediately makes everybody shift in their seats. When you hear a preacher talk about it, you just imagine him shaking a Bible or her shaking a Bible at you and screaming down at you. It's the word that has been used by self-righteous religious people over the years to talk about how horrible our culture and world around us is. It is a S word that makes us uncomfortable. Some of us think of another S word, shenanigans. Or is there another S word y'all were afraid I was going to accidentally drop here this morning like the past? So what is up with this S word? Why does it make us so uncomfortable? The, the Greek word for sin literally means this. To be without. To miss the mark. To fail. 
to wander from, to fall short. And so maybe our uncomfortable nature with this word is that we don't like to recognize and embrace that within ourselves. I don't know about you, but we all want to act like we've got it all together. Am I right? As one author put it, peace is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to the architect and to the builder. Or as one author put it, sin happens whenever we refuse to keep growing. Why do we feel so uncomfortable with this word? How do we miss the mark? Let's think about it this way. Um, I believe in deep work. I'm, I'm a weirdo, but for the place for me that I can do the deepest work is in a coffee shop. I know that sounds insane, but I can get into a coffee shop, I can pop my earbuds in, I can put on Amazon Prime on my film soundtrack channel, and I can just go at it. And I'm the type of person that I'll work on a project and I'll look at the clock and it's literally been hours. That's the type of deep work I'm talking about. I've tried at times to, um, to work out of the house, but I have found that I can't do it. Um, mainly because my entire life I have been borderline tested for attention deficit disorder my entire life. Squirrel. Did y'all see the squirrel? I've had to discover the elements that help remove the distractions from my work. So I can't get on social media. I can't read the news. I have to control what notifications I get from my phone. Did you know that 89% of Americans have admitted to wasting time at work doing things other than work? None of us would ever agree to that, right? 31% said they spend at least an hour doing things that aren't work at work. The average office worker claims that they're distracted every three minutes at work. Wasting time at work can be any number of things. We're there daydreaming like about a better job <laughs> or about being on vacation or cuddled up on the couch, been watching Matlock. I don't know what you watch. Like, is that on Netflix? Anybody? No? Matlock? Nobody remembers Matlock? Oh, okay. Squirrel? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about here. I, I found a study that one group of people admitted to losing their focus in this way. You ready? Blowing bubbles in sub-zero weather to see if the bubbles would freeze or break. Shaving their legs in the bathroom, that is disgusting. Coming up with practical jokes on other coworkers, or this is my favorite, sleeping but claiming that you are praying while you're at work. <laughs> There's actually a website you can go to called can'tyouseeimbusy.com, which is basically a list of a bunch of games and you can make one click and to a coworker, it looks like you've got Word or Excel spreadsheets up on your computer. It's absolutely awesome. So for me, I have to be very specific or I will lose focus at work. I can't work at the house because my kids are adorable. I want to play with them. For some reason, I'm always hungry when I'm at the house. And so we lose focus. And why do we lose focus when we're at work? We lose focus because we'd rather do other things, right? Because we're not focused in and care about what we do. So we lose focus. We do this from time to time. So let's be honest with ourselves for just a moment. Maybe, just maybe, all of us miss the mark and lose focus on Christ. I'm going to be honest with myself, if, if you'll be honest with yourself. As human beings, we have a tendency to make poor choices. He chose poorly, Indiana Jones, Last Crusade reference. And since our ego gets in the way, we have a tendency to justify what we do. We don't ever want to be wrong. We don't ever look like we have lost focus. And so if we can't be honest with ourselves, who can be, be honest with? And oftentimes we glaze over our ego and our poor choices by justifying them. 
this last election season shows us just how much we give in to political and national idolatry, that we put so much hope and trust into a politician or a political system to answer all the problems of this world. Gossip, it's amazing how often we justify talking about others behind their backs and passing along half-truths, but we talk about it as if we just need to know what's happening in other people's lives. Gossip's best friend is judgmentalism. There's nothing better than putting ourselves on a pedestal and looking down at others below us. We probably forget about lying often because we live in a country where national leaders don't actually have to take ownership for the lies that spill out of their mouth. And so we start with small lies and begin to build into big things. How much of our life is driven by fear? We're afraid of not being in control, afraid, afraid of not having what we want, afraid of going without, afraid of losing our dreams, afraid of just fill in the blank. The scripture tells us that there is no love and fear, yet we choose fear every single time. Comfort and abundance have become the norm in, in, in the, the journey of people who follow with Christ in America. We can lead faithless lives because we become so dependent not on God, but on ourselves because we are the ones that earn that paycheck every single week. Why trust God when we can shape our life, our resources, what we want, when we want it? And so that leads into apathy. Apathy becomes a cultural norm when we expect other people to fix the issues. Other people to engage the marginalized, the outcast, and the immigrant among us. But probably America's greatest sin is gluttony. We overconsume on everything. I'm not just talking about food. We overconsume on money and people and exercise and fitness and fashion and stuff and desires and technology and media and products. Gluttony is America's greatest sin because we are told that we can have what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, and we pitch a fit when we don't get our way. These are just a few of the ways, the sins that, that he's saying, you're missing the mark. You're losing focus. So day after day, when we lose focus, we don't realize that these small things begin to fade our vision on focusing in on Christ. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Uh, when major events happen, most of us probably remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when it happened. Uh, on 9-11, I was in a law and justice class in Mr. Cooper's class as I watched the second plane hit the Twin Towers. Um, but there are vivid memories in my life where I remember as a child, I remember seeing things like the fall of the Berlin Wall. I remember the L.A. riots, the Rodney King beatings, the O.J. Simpson chase, the Exxon Valdez spill. But probably the earliest thing I remember, one of these indelible memories in my mind, uh, happened on January the 27th, 1986. It was the day that the Challenger exploded on takeoff. And the first question everyone asked afterwards was, what happened? And after months of investigation, the group that was commissioned to investigate the explosion discovered it all came down to a broken O-ring in the right rocket booster. I want you to imagine how big a rocket ship is, and we're talking about a very small piece that was broken as a result of it. And this was a tremendous disaster. It killed seven people, obviously, on explosion. But not only that, it set NASA back years upon years financially over this small issue. 
However, 16 years later, NASA ran into the same issue on February the 1st, 2003, when the shuttle Columbia broke apart coming back into the atmosphere. What was the issue? A tiny little issue that had broken off on the wing on takeoff. You see, small things lead to great disasters. So that's why the author says this in chapter 12, verse 5. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a child. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their fathers? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirit and live? And the discipline for us, for a little while, as though is best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. For parents in the room, I'm sure you would agree with this. Parenting is the most difficult thing that I have ever done. It is the day-to-day pressure of doing something that is not going to lead your child to be sitting with a psychiatrist like 20 years from now. I don't want to mess it up. And I've had um, something called foot and mouth syndrome my entire life. So you can imagine how difficult it is for me day after day after day. I'm just going to put it out there. Jennifer is the best parent in our family. That, that statement should stand alone. She is a gazillion times better parent than I will ever be. And I think one of the most difficult things about parenting is how to work with your kids when they make poor choices. First and foremost, I've shared uh, that I can't keep a straight face when my kids get in trouble. Like, I just find, you know, it's hilarious. So I have to cover my face. They can't take me serious. We don't spank our kids. I grew up being spanked, and I turned out okay, (laughs) Um, I think. Though I remember my parents and grandparents sharing stories about having to go out into the yard and pick out a stick that they had to then come in and get spanked over. Uh, I think we tried soap in the mouth one time when our kids like said something they shouldn't, but Madison spit it out and had that look on your face like, yeah, you're not going to do that again. So that doesn't work. The most recent thing that's worked for Aubriana is I just stare at her and say her name in a very stern voice, and she immediately starts crying, and then I feel like a horrible human being for doing that. So navigating discipline with your kids is difficult, but it's necessary. Consequences of our choices, we have to learn those things. I think the most difficult aspect of disciplining as parents is we don't discipline ourselves. We glaze over our mistakes, and by the way, your kids are learning from that as well. So the first thing we should notice from this text is not that the word discipline is used 11 times, but we should recognize the writer is saying, God recognizes and embraces us as children, as God's children. Peons. We're not these small little mistakes in this world. God is not just going out on the sin patrol, constantly trying to push down and punish us for all the mistakes. 
there's times in my life where I think God is thinking, all right, how can I deal with Andy's stupidity today? Oh, I know. I'll make him really short and not able to see like above an average level. That's been my punishment. So God is not in that mode of operation. God cares for us. Jesus didn't walk around looking at a bunch of people and saying, sinner, oh, that guy's going to hell. Sinner, sinner, you're cool. Sinner. In fact, the only time that Jesus really spoke harshly to people, nine times out of ten, was with the self-righteous religious people in the Gospels. What should that tell us? But what the text is trying to teach us here is that discipline is necessary. And I think what the issue is, is we've got baggage with that word. Because the word here is actually something positive. The word here means to train educate, to cultivate. It doesn't mean to humiliate. It doesn't mean to punish. Instead, it's an intimate term. It's a term of compassion. He's trying to say that God wants to build us up, to help improve us, to better us in who we are in life. Discipline is about helping us focus and teach us what matters most. The author and perfecter of our faith wants to train us up and teach us what's better in life. Discipline is helping us focus on and teach us what is better for us. I found some creative ways that people have disciplined their parents. These are hilarious. Um, Two kids were fighting, and so the parents decided they would uh, make them wear one shirt together the entire day. Like one big shirt, they had to stay in it all day long together. I think that would cause more fighting than no fighting at all. Uh, Kids being selfish, uh, one parent came up with a list of all the things they had to clean in the house that day, beginning with the toilets. (laughs) I love one parent put a note on the front door after their kids met a curfew and said, Here's a sleeping bag and pillow. Hope it doesn't get too cold tonight. Um, As I said, my parents spanked me as a kid. The great thing about being uh, uh, the baby of the family is I could usually run to the room and put like three or four pairs of underwear on before I could get there, and it was a little extra padding. Or the fact that uh, I was the baby of the family, so they got tired with the first two before they got to me. My parents and I are cool. Like, we had a good relationship. I'm not trying to bring a horrible mark. Like, Patty and Willard are going to come in here next Sunday, and y'all going to be like giving them the stink eye. But my, my parents never disciplined me independently. Like, it was my choices that led to discipline, whatever that discipline was. It was my responsibility, my choices. My parents were trying to teach me something. And so, may we hear this text and receive it without confusion. Maybe without projecting our baggage of difficult parental relationships. And understand that God is trying to help us refocus. God could be a God that allowed us to do whatever we wanted and never live with the consequences of our choices and we would be the most selfish and downright inconsiderate people in this world. But instead, God desires something more for us. And the writer of the Hebrew text is trying to say that God wants to help you become more because God sees you as a child. God wants to discipline. He wants to train and cultivate and educate you to become something better. As the great writer Richard Rohr put it, before truth sets us free, it tends to make us miserable. I don't think that we should get rid of our sin until we've learned what it has taught us. So may this text teach us something different this morning. Not to get angry with God for dealing with the consequences of our choices, but as an opportunity to educate and perfect us. You see, what the text is really trying to get us to here is a resetting of our focus on Christ. 
That's what this passage is about. Not to get caught up in the offensive language we might find with that word discipline or the word sin. It is a call, a commission for us to refocus on the pioneer and author and perfecter of our faith. That's what they call Christ in this passage. The pioneer, the author, the perfecter of faith. What he's trying to tell us is that Christ has journeyed before us. Christ journeyed into this world, faced its difficulty, we murdered him, and then he overcame it by resurrecting from the dead. Christ is the pioneer of our faith, but also says the author of our faith. Because God desires to journey with us to help write that story of our life in the kingdom of God every single day. But I love that last word here where it says, the perfecter of our faith. You see, the author is not trying to push us down and tell us that we're horrible, we're no good for nothing, we need to be disciplined for it. The writer is trying to say, God wants to bring you into perfection. I know sometimes I'm accused of thinking I walk on water, but that's not what they mean here. To perfect us, to make us more like Christ. Verse 11 says this, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and a peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. God's desire is to bring restoration, healing, and transformation into our lives. And this comes by us refocusing on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. As one author put it, faith is the word that describes the direction of your feet. Start moving when we find out that we are loved. Faith is stepping out into the unknown with nothing to guide us but a hand to grasp us out when we begin to fall. What does this perfection look like? In 2014, uh, J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller made a movie called Whiplash. It's uh, about this uh, fake school, almost like a Juilliard-esque type school. And as you can imagine, um, Simmons' character is a guy named Fletcher, and he's, he's tough, like really tough. He hurls insults at his students. He cusses at them. He's pushing them. In fact, he's the most hard on those who he sees the most talent in. And so he zeroes in on Miles Teller's character as the one he wants to perfect. And so he cracks the whip, if you will. He's the villain of the story, yet he's pushing to bring about what's best within him. And as one critic wrote, the one thing about whiplash is it's a necessity of discipline and accountability in a world where kids are embroidered with selfishness because we give out participation trophies, we get pats on the back simply for trying, and we forget that it takes hard work every single day to become something more. I'm glad we don't serve a God that screams at us like that. <laughs> but I'm thankful we have a God who sees something more in us. Who wants us to embrace the consequences of our choices so that we can become something more. Can we refocus on Christ? I think the last thing I want to point out from this text is this. You notice that he's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a community of people. God is calling us to be parts of communities, the church, that is looking to encourage us, to challenge us, and to perfect us in our faith. Are 
are we willing to be that great cloud of witnesses to each other? Are we willing to engage in discipleship together, overcoming our choices to become something more in Christ? In a world of individuality and self-support, these ancient words should challenge us to look to each other, to support one another, to be a beautiful community of the church that helps us each perfect our faith together. Let's pray. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.